What is crack a lacking, Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Banff Valley coming at you with another solo podcast and an opening monologue or eight on deck. Before we get started, just a quick reminder, we've been putting out a lot of content. I beg, plead, humbly ask you all to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. If you're not following us on YouTube, TikTok, Hardwood, uh, excuse me, Instagram, and Twitter, do that immediately as well. YouTube.com slash Hardwood Knox or search Hardwood Knox on YouTube. It'll come up. Subscribing to us on that channel as we've monetized it, even though I haven't finished the process of it, would help us out a ton. Join our Discord where we have a lot of fun conversations. The link to that is in the podcast description, as are the links to all our social accounts. We are at Hardwood Knox on Twitter, at Hardwood Knox on TikTok, at Hardwood underscore Knox on IG. Again, I do post a lot of native content to TikTok, IG, YouTube. It's not just clips from this podcast, although those do show up as well. Uh, so yes, we appreciate everyone who's done all those things. If you have done all those things, consider helping us promote this podcast, retweeting our promos, telling people who you know that like hoops about it as we try and grow this community heading into a very busy NBA offseason. But before we cannonball in to the NBA offseason and a mailbag that I've been promising uh, our listeners slash our Discord members who ask fantastic questions for this whole week, but the NBA finals were going on and it got hectic. On the bright side, this is podcast number three this week. How about them? How about that apple? How about them apples? Can't talk. I'm still hungover from the, not actually hungover, just very tired from game six of the NBA finals. The Warriors champions again, four times in eight years. Uh, The fact that they got back there this season, I don't remember my exact prediction with them. I did take the under, I believe, on their win total and said I thought they were going to finish fourth or fifth in the West. I do agree with everyone's sentiment. Steve Kerr kind of said it. Steph Curry teased it. It was going around on Twitter that this is the most improbable title that they've had, I think, when you're looking under the circumstances. In real time, I go back to 2015 a little bit just because they weren't pegged as those uh, championship contenders, really. At the time, they were a really good basketball team, but they weren't at that level, and they sort of came to that level over the course of the year. But I think when you look back as it was clarified how good, how great they actually were. It's not that surprising. You also went up against a Cavs team that was really hobbled once you did make it through the West. And so you look at this season, Clay misses almost a thousand days of basketball with the Achilles and the ACL injuries. Uh, Steph Curry's just in his age 34 season, like just for just in his age 34 season, uh, you have Andrew Wiggins, who had showed just signs before now after last season, but he really transformed his game into something different this season, especially on defense. When you're looking at his on-ball defense, still I mentioned this to Mo. There was some confusion. People thought I was saying Andrew Wiggins does not shoulder defensive responsibility. He is the go-to wing defender for the Warriors. I just don't. I don't think that he has the same off-ball responsibility or his off-ball warts, where it still seems like he's going to be prone to ball watching or at least getting beat behind him that would be a larger issue on different teams, but I actually don't care. I'm not, wasn't trying to, that was, I wasn't trying to denigrate him. I was just going into a game six analysis. The fact that he's become that player that is going to make life hell on Jason Tatum, that's going to make life hell on Luka Doncic, even though Doncic had some really high moments in the conference finals, that he had to go and check John Morant a bunch after the Gary Payton, the second injury. That's the other part of this Warriors team is that they were, you know, they had, I don't want to call them bargains, they definitely had star role players in the past. This wasn't Iguodala in his prime. They didn't have Sean Livingston. Uh, they had to mine value or roll the dice on the margins with Gary Payton the second, who Danny LaRue pointed this out and just something I didn't notice that they had uh, Gary Payton the second's early bird rights, which is essentially just really important means that they're going to be able to pay him 105% of the average annual salary, which is going to be more than $10 million if they want to keep him in free agency. Newsflash, they should keep him in free agency, having Otto Porter, the junior, having the, having Otto Porter jr, not Otto Porter, the junior finding him and not rebooting his career, but he had fallen off over the past couple seasons. Uh, when you look at where he was at his peak in Washington, uh, even Nemanja Bielitsa playing him at points in the finals, but also just getting really solid minutes from him over the season. You didn't have James Wiseman all year. Uh, you had Jonathan Kaminga became a rotation staple. One of the youngest players, uh, in the NBA, was he the youngest player in the NBA this season? I can't remember. But you had a teenager as part of your rotation. 
never really relied a ton on Moses Moody, but those are all three players that were billed as an important part of your future that either weren't present because they couldn't with James Wiseman, or you're trying to straddle these two windows. And so you have two, you have a few roster spots on guys who are critical to your future, but you know, they're not providing that value in the present that can, that can make shit difficult. And I know that people will point to the Warriors getting any look Draymond Green having like these ups and downs on offense. He's just a significantly easier offensive player to plan around now. If you're a defense, Steph still opens up a ton uh, for him, especially if, if teams are going to, to blitz him, uh, try face guarding him. But Draymond Green is I just feel like less of an offensive weapon than he was like two or three years. So that could be an age thing. Maybe he was banged up this season. He stepped up in the finals though, defensively. I think he had like one and a half to two really bad games overall. When you're looking at, Oh, was his defensive impact able to overshadow what he wasn't doing on offense. Kavon Looney, just absolutely spectacular going from this player who was oft unavailable to an iron man for the warriors. And look throughout the course of the finals, probably their third best player overall behind Steph and, Andrew Wiggins, that, that is incredible. And I, I know people are going to point to, they had the gap years and I'm that had to help. Stephen Curry was able to sprinkle and rest through there, but the biggest asset to actually, that should have come out of those gap years was the number two pick in 2020. And they, they made the wrong pick as of right now, we can fast forward down the line and they are immune to criticism for it because they want a title within that window. But when you're projecting ahead to their future or a player who would have impacted them more in the immediate Anthony Edwards. Uh, they didn't have a chance to get Anthony Edwards, but LaMelo ball would have been the better pick. Now, do they get here in that scenario? If they have to give LaMelo ball certain amount of reps and touches, you're obligated to play him with James Wiseman, where they did bring him along more slowly when he was playing anyway. And then also he's injured. So you don't have to worry about that. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not even trying to criticize that decision, but it was improbable that they would be here when you look at this season. Uh, even when you thought that we knew, but we wrote off Kawhi Leonard for the Clippers. Uh, did we think that the Nuggets were going to become what they did? Lose Michael Porter for the whole year that Jamal Murray wouldn't play? Maybe that was on the table. But the Lakers weren't supposed to be dog shit. And even beyond them, like the Grizzlies are going to be an issue moving forward. And they really came alive. The Phoenix Suns are an absolute powerhouse the Mavericks had Luka Doncic uh, it wasn't an easy trip to get there you look at I think at the beginning of the year had you said in the finals the Warriors were going to face the Celtics or the Bucks or the Heat maybe even at that point the Sixers I mean who the hell knows there but like you probably would have been more inclined to pick one of those East teams and so the fact that they're here while the big three are not in their heyday anymore. Steph, Steph Curry very much is. Clay Thompson was playing better by the end of the year. The offense has come and gone, but I think we've seen a lot better performance from him defensively, including away from the ball. Makes me excited for next season because Seth Partnow pointed this out. I think it was on the Nerd She Wrote podcast for The Athletic that he suffered basically two injuries that are considered two-year injuries each, where you have to come back from them and you need that grace period thereafter, that one year. And then in the second year, that's when you're maybe closer to hole. Clay Thompson's older. I don't know if we'll ever see prime clay again. He came back in the middle of this season, by the end of the playoffs, he, he was an impactful player in my opinion, which means that the warriors aren't done, but we don't need to, this isn't really a time to project ahead for them. I am fascinated by their off season. We will get into it in future podcasts, uh, but it's a time to appreciate it. It's a time for reflection that this is one of the strongest dynasties in the NBA four titles and, in eight years, including six finals appearances. That's absolutely mind melting. And when they've been healthy, when they've had the big three, like they've just made the finals over the course of that time. Uh, they, Clay Thompson, passed two injuries. They didn't even make the playoffs for one of the worst teams in the league in 2019, 2020, 2020, 2021. Also, without him, they get bounced in the play in tournament. Uh, it's incredible that they're here. And kudos to the Celtics. I'll touch on them really quickly in a minute. The Steph Curry conversation, I think. I dunked on a Skip Bayless tweet in a video I did for IG, TikTok, YouTube specific. And I think I posted on Twitter as well. So you can go check that out. The discussion on Steph Curry, I think it needs to change, but it's marching towards change where it felt like I was even yelling at the clouds by posting that video. I think generally the NBA intelligence is starting to recognize like this is someone who is top 10 all time in that discussion at the very least. And he didn't need the finals MVP to get there. I want to make that clear. He didn't need it to cement his legacy. He didn't need it to prove value independent of Kevin Durant. Didn't need it to you know, prove anything to the talking heads and engagement soldiers who thought 
and insisted that he needed to get it. His legacy was cemented. Everything he's doing at this point is gravy to me. And there will be longevity that matters when you're getting into a discussion of Steph versus Tim Duncan or Magic Johnson or, or Shaq. And then I do think Steph, look, he's always going to have maybe some of the, the all-NBA count issues since he came on a little bit later in his career than a lot of other of these guys. There may always be a deficit there. But the numbers, like, just all around, uh, ESPN Stats and Info, Info had this. Six players in NBA history have at least four rings, multiple league MVPs, and a finals MVP. LeBron, MJ, Magic Johnson, Kareem, Tim Duncan, and now Steph Curry. Uh, that is absolutely incredible. You look at you know people talking, oh, Steph never came up big in the finals and this and that. They're wrong. Like they're they're lying or they're ignorant to what actually happened. Uh, Steph is averaging 32.5 points per game in title clinches, title clincher games per ESPN stats and info. Again, that's the second most all time behind only Michael Jordan. You needed to play in a minimum of two title clinching games. That is like th- that is monstrous. That is absolutely incredible. Uh, this is someone also I think we need to take this into account. Like I don't. One, I don't think longevity is weighted necessarily enough in a lot of the conversations uh, when you're talking all time. And it's so hard to just rank players across different eras. The other thing that I don't think is taken into account enough, though, is just the sheer impact on the game. Did they warp it, change the way it's played, transform it? Steph Curry has. He has rewritten the book on how defenses need to approach a player of his caliber. He has set a standard for shot selection that I don't know that we'll ever see a player perfectly mime or even a a 90% facsimile of a Steph Curry, but it has been okay to take these ultra long threes early in the shot clock. Defenses need to be on their toes for certain players. If it's a Damian Lillard, if it's a Trey young, they're even just role players that have certain carte blanche to fire away from, from super deep, whether you're talking about in a manual quickly heat check, whether you're talking about, someone like a Fred Van Fleet. He has, and I'm not saying he's necessarily affected those players specifically. I would argue Trey Young, most definitely, but he's changed the game of basketball and is absolutely amazing. And I think we don't need to necessarily pay credence. We're free. I think dunking on them is fine. If you're placing stock in the opinion of Skip Bayless at this point, when it comes to, I mean, really anything, but, like that's that's your choice. Mark Jackson saying that Steph needs to thank the Celtics uh, for his Finals MVP is just it's just bullshit. Like the Celtics, and while I was definitely not smart enough to notice this from the jump of the series, I talked about it with Mo DeKeel. I feel like I've shouted out Caitlin Cooper a bunch in this podcast. Really. She pointed out on Twitter as a Jared Dubin, the Celtics played drop because they decided that it was easier to try and take away other elements of the Warriors' offense. Um, wide open shots for the supporting cast or, you know, lanes for them to, to cut and drive through. And then also just the short role playmaking of Draymond Green, then it was to go right at Steph Curry. Could they have done different things where there was sort of a happy medium? Maybe. Uh, probably just a little tough with someone who is good as Al Horford is on the older side. He needs to retreat a little bit sooner, even if he's going to show up higher. Rob Williams, the third. Again, he can come up higher and held his own in certain situations. It's still just Steph against the big. If that's going to be your only look, uh, Steph is going to win that battle like 99% of the time. And when they did go after him towards the end of game four, a lot more in game five, he was able to punish them with his passing, um, just the opportunities that he's creating for all the others on his team. Like that is the impact of Steph Curry. And it's with a lot of players. This idea isn't unique to him. It can be tough to quantify his actual value on the court and gravity's become a cliche, but it means something with him. This is someone who is one of the most valuable offensive players on the court with when he doesn't have the ball in his hands, when he doesn't touch the ball in a single possession because of the movement that he uh, subscribes to away from the ball, the attention that he's going to gain there. Defenses are frantically concerned about him there is ball watching we know there's also Steph watching where you could be on the ball and you're still trying to look and maybe account for Steph but certainly when you're away from the ball I in my lifetime have certainly never seen a player like that there's people who are far smarter than I am when it comes to the functional nuances of this game who have said the same thing 
it is more egregious, and I tweeted this, to leave Steph Curry outside your top 10 than to put him on your, your Mount Rushmore. And getting into the specific order, I don't know when the last time I actually sat down and did it and put a ton of thought into. Um, the only ones that I would guarantee for me that are ahead of him right now are MJ, LeBron, Tim Duncan, I think still, Shaq, and Kareem. I think he's surpassed Magic Johnson just when you're looking at, and maybe not, but if he hasn't, like I would say he's no worse than seventh at this point. Uh, And look, some people can put him lower. If you want to talk about Larry Bird, Will Chamberlain, I get it inside that. I I totally get it. Uh, I don't think there's a conversation between Steph or Kevin Durant anymore. Sort of those players. I would argue that Steph to me has very clearly surpassed Larry Bird. Uh, when, you, when you're when you looking at the longevity argument specifically and even projecting ahead a little bit, even if you want to account for, all right, Steph is older, but do we have like two to, to five years? Maybe five is a lot, but like even two, three more seasons of Steph Curry playing at not a megastar level, but a superstar level, that's going to mean something when you're looking at his, his legacy there. And so that's where he's at right now. And I think this title also means something because like it wasn't, you you couldn't assign more value to another player on this team. There wasn't the Andre Godala checking LeBron in 2015. Andrew Wiggins was great, but you look at how streamlined his offensive role was, uh, even having less playmaking responsibilities than a Sean Livingston or Andre Godala did at certain points for the Warriors. Uh, Wiggins was fantastic defensively. I saw people point out that he was the Warriors' best two-way player. Like, if we want to do that, like, yeah, that's fine. Steph was clearly the best player. And the final thing that I can say about his legacy, I think what's cropped up, it was in the comments on YouTube, IG, TikTok a little bit. I've seen it on Twitter. Is that, well, the difference between Steph and these guys is he's a defensive liability. Now, Steph is not as good of a defender as Prime MJ or LeBron or Shaq or Tim Duncan. He's, He's just not on their level, not Kareem. He's not a defensive liability. He, maybe he has at one point in his career. People point out now that he's gotten stronger. The Warriors have moved him around a bunch, and they've had luxuries of matchups. This is also someone that they have not actively tried to hide all the time. And this is someone who I thought, even in the final specifically, held up against moments in which the Celtics were going after him. Now, it gets a little bit more dicey, iffy, when you have him and Jordan Poole on the court at the same time. You're going to run into that issue with a bunch of players, and not everyone could be all all world at both ends of the court. And there are people that I'm going to argue, even if they were better defensively, let's use Nakeem. I think the value Steph Curry provides on offense is just light years ahead of what Hakeem Olajuwon did. Uh, And light years might be an insulting frame, but like that is part of his value is you can be so good, so impactful on offense that it overshadows any defensive struggles. And I would argue Steph's not bad on defense so much as he's limited just by his physical profile in certain instances. And I do think he's big enough to stand up against certain switches or when the Warriors have put him against primary ball handlers. It doesn't matter to me that he's had players, particularly during this stretch of Warriors dominance, that have allowed them to be more flexible with their matchups. You do that with your best players in general these days. And whether they're considered a liability or not, even engaged defensive LeBron before this season with the Lakers, when he was playing at a higher level, like that was someone that they were moving around and putting in favorable positions. So I'm just not, if, if you don't want to make defense a part of Steph Curry's legacy, I, I totally get that. I do feel like his value is sometimes overblown and it is his success. There has more to do with, I think, the ecosystem they've put around him in recent years when you had prime clay and Iguodala and Livingston and then Draymond, one of the best defenders of all time. But I don't think it can be used as a means to detract from him. Now, if you want, if it's getting into a discussion between him or Tim Duncan or Shaq, yeah, that's maybe where you have to start accounting for it. I will come back to though. I probably feel like I'm going to have Steph on my personal Mount Rushmore by the time he retires, just accounting for another, even another season like this, two, three seasons like this, that goes a long way in separating him and helping him climb the, the ladder. The, the final wrap up on this is we had a discord question from glad Larry bird versus Tim Duncan all time. After looking through the accolades and everything, I kind of feel like I have to lean Duncan. Obviously I never really watched bird in his prime, but is there maybe more nostalgia going into the rankings than actual accomplishments and skill? And 
they noted this question came from debating if Steph is now top 10 all time and who do you replace? Uh, they believe that it would be Shaq or Wilt who gets kicked out. I think it would probably be Wilt more likely. It depends on your, your order specifically. Uh, when it comes to Bird and Tim Duncan, just the longevity of Tim Duncan uh, and even the accolades of Tim Duncan, Larry Bird was the more anomalous offensive player, but he was never, and I did not watch Larry Bird in his prime, but he was never a superstar at both ends of the floor. Tim Duncan, Shaq, those were superstars at both ends of the floor. And that does go into why I, I think I still have both ahead of Steph. If you're going to tell me you have Steph ahead of Tim Duncan or Shaq, I'm not going to, I'm just not going to fight you a ton on it. I think there are going to be valid arguments that said logic is, is rooted in, but congratulations to the Warriors. Congratulations to, to Steph, one of the, the six or seven greatest basketball players of all time. That's where I'm at with Steph. Uh, closer to Mount Rushmore than not at this point. I don't even, that's not even a spicy take. Again, this could be, be just me railing against nobody at this point. Congratulations to the Celtics for making it to the finals. Uh, the loss seemed to really hit Jason Tatum pretty hard. Jalen Brown was felt like he was fairly upbeat. Al Horford disappointed, but talked about their growth. Smart went the, I, we want it more route moving forward because now we've tasted it. Uh, this was a spectacular season for them. They were dead where they stood. I wrote them off in December or might've been, maybe it was January. Maybe I gave them until then, but I wrote them off then. And they ended up in the, the NBA finals. They have a hellacious defense. I did see some of the discourse on Twitter shifted to poking fun at Jason Tate. Like this is the NBA finals. You were the best player on a team that made it to the NBA finals. There's, there's just no shame in that. Uh, you went up against an Andrew Wiggins who did a good job against you. Some of the decision-making on Boston, the turnovers are an issue. Uh, Christian Narsu of B-Ball Index did point this out, that when you look at the types of turnovers they're having, a lot of it does have to do with the makeup of their roster, where you, unless you're going to get better ball handling from, from Tatum and Brown and, and even Smart, like this stuff might be ingrained into your offense. I do think part of it is, is an issue they can build upon. We've seen Jason Tatum grow as a playmaker and make the less obvious reads, the ones that are going to keep defenses on tilt more. Can Jalen Brown and even Marcus Smart do the same. And I think Marcus Smart can do the same. Can he do the same in high leverage moments might be my question against some of the, the defensive looks that were thrown at Boston throughout this series. And so naturally the conversation is, Oh, can they go out? Can they get a point guard, a game manager, a playmaker? I saw some people saying it was too early to talk about that. And it's overblowing the issues. Maybe it was too early. It was during the middle of a finals game. So I'll definitely concede that. I do think there is, value or validity in having that discussion. And I'm not saying they need to go out and make this monster trade uh, for a point guard where it's trademark is smart to bring in a point guard. No, that's, that's not what I'm saying. And that is part of their issue. Like you're looking at, let's assume Al Horford is back. So him, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Derek white, Marcus smart, your top five guys, your top six guys, let's throw Robert Williams, the third in there are your best salary matching tools, but can you afford to get rid of any one of them? Maybe some people argue that's white. They'll certainly argue it's Horford. I don't think it's as easy just to say that, but this is a situation where it's like, I'm wondering if you got a Tyus Jones in there, how much of a difference does that make? Uh, would he be on the floor during crunch time to where you have to ask yourself, okay, well then does that really matter? Uh, are we talking about a team that doesn't need, you know, Oh, Fred Van Fleet or Damian Lillard on this team, but as just like an example, do they need to go after like a, like a Lonzo ball, I'm not saying he's available, but where he's not the traditional half court playmaker, but kind of to even organize your offense just a little bit more. I don't know what caliber you could peg, but I will say that if you had a Tyus Jones level player on this team, I think it could make a huge difference because that's how close the Celtics are. And if you need to play him in certain higher leverage moments or just throughout the game to give you a better handle on the defensive the, excuse me, the turnover issues that you're having. Uh, that means a great deal, even if it's outside of crunch time, even if it's outside the fourth quarter. Uh, and just so happens, Tyus Jones will be available via free agency. The Celtics, though, if if we assume Al Horford is back, uh, they're not going to have room to use the full mid-level exception, uh, the full non-taxpayers mid-level exception, excuse me. I think if Al Horford comes back, they're just going to be flat out in the tax at that, that point. So... How do you go about, you can't, you know, you're not going to get involved in the sign, sign and trade then because you can't work within the hard cap. 
So that is that is going to be what's difficult for them. And you go through just sort of the list of players who could be available. Again, I haven't spent enough time thinking about this. I'm not in the full off-season transaction mode just yet. It doesn't seem like there's anyone who's just going to be readily available for them to maybe go out and get. If the Knicks were willing to give you a Derrick Rose, like in a trade, how much does that help you? Even if Mark Fultz was on the table in Orlando, I don't think he's a good enough playmaker, even if he has some directionality and control to his game. He also makes a crap ton of money. And so how do you find yourself matching that without giving up a, a core player. And I would argue you certainly should not be doing that for uh, Mark Fultz. If, you know, DeJounte Murray became available in San Antonio, you already have Derek White. I don't even know if Murray would be the answer that you need there. Mike Conley in Utah, I do think would be really interesting. But again, when you're looking at who you would need to give up, I don't want to give up Marcus Smart in that deal or Derek White. Al Horford, sure, but why are the Jazz doing that? And so you get into some pretty awkward discussions there. Uh, the free agency list for what you could, even if you're willing to spend the entire taxpayer's mid-level exception, and they do have some trade exceptions as well, uh, but I, you know, there's not a lot of just like floor general types or good playmakers that teams are just going to give you. You're not going to take Kemba Walker back from the Knicks. Like that's something that I would be shocked if they just decided to, to do. Uh, so can you use the mini mid-level exception on beefing up the point guard? This might be a very interesting John Wall team if he gets bought out. Uh, again, I don't know if he's going to be the best half-court organizer, but just to provide some structure there. DeLon Wright, I think he would be part an upgrade. I mean, certainly when you're just looking at the bench, which is the biggest issue for sure, is he available for the mini mid-level exception? I honestly don't know. There was clamoring for Rubio before this year. Um, that's someone if you can, you could certainly buy time until he's back from his ACL. If you believe in that, I don't know. Just when you look at his, his limitations as a score, I'm not even panning him as a shooter. We've seen him improve his standstill touch in the past. Just the half court setup. How much is he going to do for you there? Uh, it's so my point being, it's an issue that I think needs to be addressed. Unless you're projecting mega playmaking leaps from Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown moving forward, which you know, fair. Uh, I think it's something you have to look at, even if it's just a matter of putting you in a situation, uh, someone who plays the first 43 to 44 minutes of a game, not consecutively, and you're not relying them so much on them so much in the crunch time unit. I think that's something that it would impact this team a great deal. Finally, we, we have a trade to talk about. I thought about recording an emergency podcast on it, but it just didn't feel like it, it warranted it. And I need to um, stop taking on too much, basically. But the Mavericks are acquiring C Christian Wood, and it is a move. Look, we knew the Dallas was going to try and get a big, but when you look at the value that they gave to the Houston Rockets, I was, I was surprised that Christian Wood didn't cost more. I guess it would help if I gave you the package. Would you not know it? But the Rockets traded Wood to the Mavericks for the number twenty-six pick in the twenty twenty-two draft. Boban, Trey Burke. Marquise, Chris, and Sterling Brown. Uh, this, I tweeted this, this looks like a trade that was proposed on a Reddit fan page. And even if you want to make the case that the value between them isn't like this egregious discrep discrepancy, uh, I look at the four for ones and it's four players. You see these fans, four players that their teams don't really need or don't play a ton for someone who they are going to play a ton. That, like, those are the deals that we make fun of. And that's what this one looked like. Rockets fans, for them, they seemed pretty happy to get rid of Christian Wooden to get a first-round pick in the process. He is extension eligible and entering the final year of his deal. Uh, he was not good defensively this past season. He has never really been good defensively. There have been moments, but there are a lot of just there's a lot of off-ball attentiveness. What feels like someone who's just not moving a ton on defense and playing with a lack of thrust there. So it seems like they were pretty happy to get rid of him. And I think you can give organizations the benefit of the doubt that if this is what they accepted, there probably wasn't a whole bunch out there and certainly maybe not much better offers because you've tried to wait out the free agency market and maybe a team gets desperate. Sure. But you're in the top three of the, the draft. You're probably going to wind up with a Paolo Bancaro um, or I guess less likely Chet Holcomb slash Jabari Smith Jr., you already have Usman Grubu didn't play much this season, plus Alpum Shangun. This opens minutes to the front court, like full stop. I, I get the logic, and you got a first round pick, three first round picks now in this draft. Let's see if they can use 26 and 17, I think that they have to, to move up and or just bring in guys. Like they have the, you know, 
their roster isn't like full of all these open spots, but they could decide to go draft and stash. Or like I said, again, move up. I think Eric Gordon gets moved this off season as well. I think it's a fine trade for the Rockets. I'm probably more indifferent to the return at this point, because if he was actively harming your locker room, then yeah, you needed to get out of, get it, like get him out of there. Uh, I don't know that you, and another first round flyer in general is great. The 26 pick to me, it just seems on the lower end when you're not getting back anything else that would be abuse of use. And I don't, I don't view Christian Wood as that bad player. And I saw there were, you know, people who are looking at this saying, yo, you're going to get fooled by the box score with Christian Wood. I don't know what you're going to get fooled by the box score on. He is a very good, versatile scorer, anomalous for his size. Uh, when you look at this, which is pretty incredible, the only other players over the past three seasons to average 20 points per 36 minutes while shooting as well on twos, which is around 59%, and, and threes, 38%, are, in addition to Christian Wood, John Collins and Michael Porter Jr. And for people who hate the per 36 stuff, if you just go by per game, Christian Wood's points per game average during this time, 16 plus points, it's him and John Collins. I opened, I used per 36, not to help Christian Wood, but to maybe open up the, the candidacy for other players like in MPJ. He has a really nice floor game for a big he gives you some self-creation, but it's also rolled into being able to be used as an accessory device. If you give him space and a good pick and roll partner, he's going to help as a pick and popper. He can even roll to the rim, finish lobs there. Um, that's in addition to all the self-creation he brings. And just even having, even if you don't think that, I don't think that you, he's someone that you should be funneling the ball to in the post, but someone who could face up. Um, in slower half-court sets or just attack off the dribble immediately off the catch after popping, that's a huge value. It's not something Kristaps Porzingis could do with Dallas. I do also think that we're discounting a little bit. This is sort of the first like real team Christian Wood has played for. No disrespect to the Pistons, the, the Pelicans, uh, and even the Rockets. They just weren't teams that were on these immediate win-now timelines. None of them were contenders, most certainly. I'm very, and he's never played alongside another, he's never played alongside a playmaker as talented as Luka Doncic. Few have, but even just a, a point guard who ranks inside the, uh, he was there during the Drew Holidays in New Orleans, I believe. But like even a point guard who ranks like a top 10 floor general or top 15 floor general um, for an extended period of time to safeguard myself against the whatever Drew Holiday, if people think I'm slandering Drew Holiday for some reason. And just look at where the Pelicans were at that point anyway. So, I like this play by the Mavericks. He doesn't address what they need defensively, but they had one of the seven best defenses this year without sort of having a premier rim protector. Christos Porzingis was fine, but kind of unreliable there. You do have Maxi Kleba, Dwight Powell. He can play with either one of them. Um, you have Dorian Finney-Smith, Reggie Bullock still. This is, I think you can incorporate a Christian Wood when you're looking at some of the dudes the Mavericks played this season without torpedoing your defense. I don't think he can be the only move, and I'm not painting it as a move that he, you know, clears the, the gap that's separating Dallas from title contention. Uh, but this was a very low risk proposition. Did they give up on a, on a first round pick as they have been very inclined to do over the past, like two decades, basically. Sure. But what was the number 26 pick turning into? If you're lucky, it turns into a player who makes as much of an impact as Christian would. Seriously. That's, that's what you get if you're lucky. And Yes, to have a player under cost control for the next four years under team control would be a very big deal. You have to assume that you're going to hit on it. And if you think the Mavericks should have kept that opportunity, I get it. I don't think the number 26 pick would have actually played a role on this team in either of the next two years when you look at how urgent their timeline is just because you have one of the five best players in the game, seven best players in the game, Luka and you were just in the conference finals, sort of playing the wait-and-see game or giving developmental reps to a rookie, wasn't in the cards. And if you're worried about Christian Wood for some reason just imploding the Mavericks' like, ecosystem or vibes or whatever, uh, he's under contract for one year at 14.3. That's a number that can be rerouted if the Mavericks want to. And I would say for next season, Christian Wood is going to be more valuable than the number 26 pick. The other thing here, I think people have written off the idea that he would sign an extension based off the number that it could be. I'm just, I'm not so sure. Is this someone who's going to get $20 million a year in free agency next year? If he has a spectacular season, sure, maybe. But I think we've also seen the value of bigs is repressed when you're not a superstar. 
maybe when you're either a more traditional big or when you play one side of the floor. And what I also will say here is that the dude can move and he leaves so much to be desired on the defensive end, but he has the size and mobility to muck up half court possessions. If he's working out of drop coverages or making rotations around the basket when he's fully engaged, we've just, you can go look at Christian Wood film, uh, which I did in the past, not in anticipation of this podcast, but for something I was writing this season, there are good defensive moments and there were good defensive moments when he turned into an everyday player for the Pistons way back when they've never been put together. If I'm missing something offensively, you can say that I didn't see enough of the Rockets. Like, yeah, if Houston Rockets fans watch every game twice, like I'm choppering in for chunks of games at a time, trying to watch as much film on players as I possibly can when I'm writing about them. And just to keep up, I recognize that there are people who are far more knowledgeable about Christian Wood than I am. I was having conversations with Rockets people, though, who were also not Rockets employees. I want to make that clear. Uh, I don't know why anyone would aggregate this, but I had conversations with people who cover the Rockets that were surprised that this is all they got for Christian Wood. And I will say this, and this is more in defense of the Mavericks and the Rockets. If this was their proposal in the middle of the season, if let's this deal, this exact deal, even though the Mavericks functionally couldn't trade their, their first round pick, they have to do this after the draft because they owe 2023 to the Knicks. Even if they couldn't functionally offer this package, let's say it was on the table, the Rockets would have said no to it and fans would have been disgusted by it in the middle of the year. That's a nice value play by the Mavericks. And so knowing that he can be moved and knowing that his next deal, if he's good, that's not going to be immovable. Like this isn't someone also who is going into his age 38. See, that's, you know, who else is going into their age 38? Going in their age 33, age 32 season. He turns 27 in September. He is entering his prime. I love the offensive fit with Dallas. It's only going to elevate them. And look, he doesn't replace Jalen Brunson if Jalen Brunson leaves, but they just, they needed another dynamic to their offense aside from having Spencer Dinwiddie, Jalen Brunson, and Luka Doncic as your primary creators. Christian Wood gives them that element in a way Kristaps never did in ways that Dwight Powell and Maxi Kleba never were going to. And I think this is a home run trade for the Mavericks. I also think it's perfectly fine for the Rockets. I don't think they did anything wrong here. I just, the package itself was just funny to look at. And so does that make this a win-win, the second win-win trade that I've deemed of the the offseason or leading into the drafts when we go back to the Thunder Nuggets trade. Sure. I think that this one is much more closer to Dallas won this because of the value that they're getting in this deal than Houston did. Let's see what they do with the number 26 pick and the rest of their first. Let's get into this mailbag that I already recorded. So this is like a monologue on top of that. This was a lot of fun. We appreciate everyone who are asking questions. If you want to ask a mailbag question, I do send out solicitations, join our discord, but you could, I send them out on Twitter um, DM me at Dan Favale, F-A-V-A-L-E. And I just want to reiterate once more, if you are listening to this podcast first time or otherwise, please consider subscribing to all of our um, socials and this the podcast in general, download your episode. The, the biggest ways to help us though are subscribe, rate, review this podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Hardwood Knox, check us out on YouTube. And then also word of mouth, help us with promotions as we attempt to grow the off season is an important time. I think for more all league wide podcasts at this point, given how great the local coverage is now, when you don't have the idea of talking about projecting a, a head or transactions where you need to have a better hold on the rest of the league um, during the regular season, the and localized coverage is so good uh, that I recognize now that this podcast serves sort of a different purpose. Nowadays, we're always going to talk about the entire league. I'm going to try and get into the weeds as much as I can, but transactions Looking at things from a macro view, the time to do that is leading into the trade deadline, leading into the season, leading into the off season. We've got a lot of great stuff planned here. So thank you for the bottom of my heart to everyone who continues to consistently listen and engage and any newcomers, you're more than welcome. I welcome any feedback as long as you're not being an asshole about it. I'm rambling now though. Let's get into this mailbag. We will begin with T Bloom 117. What's your favorite basketball podcast not named Hardwood Knox? I have so many, and I'm not even sure that I have a favorite. I try and listen to, uh, you know, I'm going to listen to all the national ones that you guys are listening to. I, I love the low post. Um, the, the dunker spot is great. They do a great job of also incorporating WNBA coverage, and I'm trying to immerse myself in more WNBA this year. We had a podcast with Sabrina Merchant a while back where we touched on it. It's so hard. I'm, not, I'm making an excuse. With my schedule, it's been harder than I wanted it to while the NBA is going on and then even looking ahead to the draft and free agency. Um, but I've also found the step through with uh, um, Sabrina Merchant and her co-host Evan 
that has been something that's been really useful to catch up on They're on YouTube to step through. So definitely go, go check that out. Um, I, I like, I am a dunked on prime subscriber. I know people like to dunk on them, but they watch more NBA than, than most people. And so I find that useful. Uh, I really enjoy Nerder. She wrote from the athletic Dave Dufour, Seth part now, Mo Dekeel, all those guys are, are great. The past, two or three seasons, I've tried to make it a habit of really investing in the localized coverage because you do get some of the best analysis from the people that are following these teams on every, not just day, but it's like every possession basis where they're watching these games two and three times. Uh, Caitlin Cooper and Mark Schindler do a great job with the Indy Cornrows podcast and the series where they were doing stock up, stock down with prospects. So like there's that national intrigue there. That's hugely helpful if you want to to, you know, have a crash course before the NBA draft. And you know, my feelings on Caitlin Cooper, just being like the single best basketball writer, like an analyst combo out there, her ability just to write and distill this comp complicated information in a relatable way, but even recognizing it in the first place, uh, that versatility is just not even out there. The closest I would say comes to that is, is Zach Lowe and Caitlin Cooper is, I love Zach Lowe, not going to get him, but Caitlin Cooper's writing is just like on a, on a completely different level from anyone who typically covers the X's and O's as deeply as nuancedly uh, as she does. I really enjoy the timeline podcast. It's another blue wire podcast. Um, they cover the Phoenix Suns. They do a great job. You should check them out. Uh, what else do we got here? I'm trying to think of, I should go through my podcast app when I'm listening to, I already mentioned, I just listened to locked on nuggets. Uh, Adam Ades and, and Matt Moore, they do a, a really great job of, of, of running that show over there uh, thinking basketball with Ben Taylor national podcast. Great. Oh, how did I forget one of my favorites? There are, I'm honored to go on any podcast. Let me make that clear. I'm also honored when I get repeat requests. Uh, the fact that fast break breakfast uh, has me on it's, it's hosted by Keith Parrish and, um, and, and crew. The fact that they've had me on multiple times. That's like something I will geek out on because it's a podcast that I listen to and enjoy and is lighthearted. The, we have a take podcast with friend of the podcast, Tara Bowen Biggs. That is just like a completely different way of covering the NBA and specifically the Portland Trailblazers that I love. It's lighthearted. It's an escape. Um, when I tune into episodes there, I can find myself smiling, even if it's on in the background or if it's when I'm driving the car. Like I can actually hear myself smiling. Light Years does a great job covering the Warriors. Uh, everyone has to know about that as well. Knicks Film School, absolutely fantastic job covering the Knicks. Uh, I really enjoy in the know, no longer with blue wire pods with brew crew, I believe, but they they do a fantastic job as well. Covering the Pelicans there. They're one of my favorites. Just had Justin Rowan on from the chase down podcast of, of covering the calves. Um, as I'm going through this, I realized that I should like have all my team specific podcasts probably written down that I, that I try to listen to on a regular basis. Uh, the Dane Moore NBA podcast, he delves into a, mostly Minnesota Timberwolves better than anybody else, but, and has just great recurring guests on as well. But he also does a really good job of, of delving into the rest of the NBA at large, the Euro step for the Milwaukee bucks, another blue wire podcast, just like the Dane Moore NBA podcast. That is absolutely spectacular. Dishes and dimes is still a favorite of mine. Uh, they have not been publishing as regularly, uh, but they, Whenever they have dropped an episode, I think their last one was actually this week, though, unless I'm imagining it. They're they're just great over there. If you haven't subscribed to Katie Heindel's Basketball Feeling Substack either, uh, she has a great podcast there as well and always has really insightful discussions and guests on. Love listening to that. Uh, I think that's you could at least you could accuse me of a lot of things of saying that I don't know jack shit, but I really do at least try to immerse myself in as much podcast listening and, and reading consumption uh, as possible. And there have got to be people who do a better job of that than I do, but I think it's almost a necessity um, or an obligation. If you're in this industry, the way that, that I am and trying to cover the league at large, that you're listening to not just the national uh, podcast, but like going in deeper and listening to these, the localized coverage on a regular basis, again, in large part, because it's so freaking good. I'm going to miss the Hawks report with Sarah K Spencer. She's been moved to the um, Georgia football beat. So I, I will definitely miss that. The, also the I'm trying to feel oh Houston Rockets man the Red Nation Hoops podcast going through my library right now hosted by Salman Ali that's that's a really good one as well uh, there's podcasts for every team uh, that I should have made a more comprehensive list for I didn't anticipate going this long on my actual favorite podcast the Grizzlies Grit and Grinds does a really good job that's with Keith Parrish of Fast Break Breakfast and they cover the Grizzlies a lot 
on Fast Break Breakfast. So yeah, if you need recommendations for specific teams, you're free to hit me up. If you want to throw me recommendations, maybe for some podcasts or writers that you feel are underserved and are doing a really good job that don't get enough recognition, go ahead and throw that my way. You could DM me on Twitter at Danfa Valley, or if you're in our Discord, you could check that out as well. Uh, there's a lot of good podcasts out there, though. I have no idea why you're listening to this one. Um, Demo Cool asks, what's the future like for Fultz in Orlando? Who do you prefer, Derek White or Markel Fultz? Who is the better fit for Orlando to draft, and what do they plan to do with Mo Bamba? This question got me thinking more than any question about Markel Fultz ever should, I feel like. I caught shit on Twitter a couple weeks ago because I said I didn't view Markel Fultz as a cornerstone for the Magic, and the pushback was, oh, the magic view is a cornerstone. I don't, I don't actually care. I don't think that they should is my point. Uh, he is a good useful player though. I don't think he can actually be the engine of your offense. When you're comparing him to Derek white is interesting. If you're looking for someone to be the engine of your offense, I would prefer faults. There's more directionality to his off the dribble attacks. I think you can trust his mid range game. Derek white has that floater. He's not going to hit off the dribble threes. Marco Fultz isn't going to dream of shooting off the dribble threes. Uh, but I Mark Fultz getting to his spots, excuse me, in that mid range. Uh, he does a better job of that. I also think that as, as a passer, like he's going to be slightly better when you're asking him to create from scratch where Derek white feels like sort of that quick second pass guy or make the really slick accelerated reads. Uh, Mark Fultz, if you need to slow things down, is going to be able to orchestrate from that perspective. I, I Derek white's off ball defense and screen navigation is definitely better than, than Mark Fultz. And I think I would prefer him, Overall, Fultz really has some nice size and heft to him, though, to where he can defend some assignments that I don't think people fully appreciate. There's more sort of stop on a dime, like footwork creation with him as well. So between these two specifically, I think if you're looking for someone to complement a larger ecosystem that's already set up, like Boston, Derek White is the way to go, hands down. But if you're actually looking to take a flyer on a player who can be a more prominent part of whatever you're doing, I think I would lean Markel Fultz at this point. Um, the future for him in Orlando, I, I honestly, I don't know. I mean, they're still, they're backcourt heavy without having anything figured out because they do have Jalen Suggs. They have Cole Anthony. They have RJ Hampton. Um, they're not going to draft another backcourt guy with the number one overall pick. So there's, you know, and Terrence Ross might actually be traded. So they're getting some clarity there, but there's still confusion there are going to be minutes for him and chances for him to earn reps. I don't think that he is the playmaker of the future for this team. Uh, I think if he was going to be, and maybe they'll do this, you need to surround him with a lot more, more shooting than Orlando has done at this point. Uh, but I do still think he's a really useful player. I don't know if I would view him as a, an asset when you're talking about trades. Uh, he's owed 16.5 million next year. And then he has a partial guarantee uh, the following season for $2 million on his $17 million salary. So if you're a team, you can look at that as basically an expiring contract if you want to move money that way. But I think you need to be have confidence that he can develop more off-ball utility than he has now on offense. Otherwise, you need to put the ball in his hands. And I don't think the Magic are built in a way where putting the ball in his hands is actually going to um, enhance their offense. Like It might give them a better floor, a higher floor, than if you were to give it to certain other players. But I don't know... Right now, they're definitely not built for him to be the one that elevates their ceiling. And I'm still endlessly curious about what type of player he turns into because I do think there's more to plumb with him. I think he has the ability to reach the basket more when you just look at his size, his strength, and then, again, some of the moves he made inside the arc this year. Um, and I do think, again, if you're looking for someone to shoulder more offensive responsibilities with the ball in their hands, I probably prefer... Markel Fultz, but I think it's way easier and way more useful to fit in someone like a Derek White. I would now segueing back to the future Markel Fultz in Orlando. I fully expect him to be in trade rumors at some point this season. Um, I, you know, unless he has just like a huge year, you're looking at Jalen Suggs. You're about to add another rookie in, you know, Jabari Smith Jr. is the, what everyone thinks they're going to do. Um, we'll get to that in a second. I don't know if that's what they should do. Um, I, it wouldn't surprise me just because you are going to, you have another, only another year technically after ne the next one left on his deal. Um, and if you don't think he's your point guard of the future or playmaker of the future, however you want to phrase it, like there could be a nice give and take there between him and Jalen Suggs. I think Jalen Suggs is like underrated because of how much we're reading into his rookie season and the responsibilities Orlando shouldered upon him, particularly before Markel Fultz even returned. So there's a lot of TBD stuff here. It just wouldn't surprise me if 
this season, we're looking at Orlando kind of saying, okay, we have Franz Wagner. We have, uh, you know, whoever they drafted at number one, I, I'm like ready to as- assign a name to it when he doesn't exist. We have Suggs, Wagner, and whoever we drafted number one. Like it's time to sort of lean further into that, consolidate McLaurin that way. And Fault and Isaac, maybe even Cole Anthony is available. And I, I think Wendell Carter Jr. to me has a better chance of sticking with the core than Fultz. Uh, that being said, it does depend on who they pick. They might, you know, might, if you're going to take Chet Holmgren, I would think that he eventually projects as your five of the future, even though he can play next to another big. Uh, but as John Hollinger wrote about at the athletic, there's space ball where it's size and, and players who are huge yet play like wings or smaller players. They're not actually smaller players. So maybe they lean into that. If I was the magic, I'm on the clock at number one, I full stop would draft Paulo Bencaro. I think he has like every level offense in him and can score eventually. Even if you don't believe in that, like in every facet that you imagined, uh, you wanted to probably put on some like more strength if he's going to finish through contact, but I think he's going to be someone who hits these tough off the dribble jumpers can space the floor. If he's away from the ball, can really get moving towards the rim can just attack from a standstill, get going in transition, have some really difficult finishes, stop on a dime shooting. Uh, I trust that he's going to be an above average playmaker um, for his size. I really am just tantalized by his offensive potential. That being said, if I was the magic and I was going for fit or I was trying to go for a more complete package, Chet Holmgren feels like the answer here because it feels like they could really build this transcendent defensive beast. If you're not making any other moves, having Isaac Holmgren and Markel Fultz on your team, just monstrous. Even having Chumi Okiki there as well. Um, will he show enough offensively to play a ton of minutes, but it's going to give you some good wing stoppage, power wing stoppage, whatever you want to call it. Um, I would just really like to see what Holmgren and Isaac can accomplish together. Even if you went super big, like if you think Isaac can play the three or guard threes consistently, playing Holmgren and Wendell Carter Jr. at the same time in that scenario, uh, when you're looking at actual fit, I think Jabari Smith Jr., just he is so dynamic offensively already, and it's probably easier to plug him next to another big than even Paolo Bancaro a little bit. I'm not sure who winds up being the you fast forward five years and I haven't done enough prep for this probably either. I'm not sure who I would peg is the better defender. I think Paolo is going to end up being a lot better on that end, at least more disruptive than people have given him credit for. Uh, I could see Jabari Smith jr. Though, just as someone who's, you're able to move around and make it easier to hide in a bunch of different spots. Maybe that's more valuable. Uh, he already feels a little bit more polished offensively and slots right in a little bit easier next to a, Wendell Carter Jr. and Jonathan Isaac, if that's the route that you want to go. Um, I I don't, if I, like, I would take Palov on the Magic. I would just go for the best player there. I would also prefer Chet Holmgren, though, than Jabari Smith Jr. And it to me, that immediately makes me feel like I'm missing something because it, the consensus has been, or at least close to it, that they're going to take Jabari Smith Jr. So I don't really know what I'm doing wrong th- there. We'll have to see how that plays out. And the final aspect of this is what happens with Mo Bamba. I would be fairly surprised if they tender him a qualifying offer at this point, slated to be a restricted free agent. Maybe they just do it anyway for the hell of it. They have their slated to have cap space and it's not like they're going to spend it. And if he can get cheap enough, like, yeah, I guess you could keep him around. Maybe try and move him for an asset later. Do you facilitate sign and trade this summer? My prediction would be he winds up on a different team, whether it's because they let him leave or there's a team that's actually willing to um, acquire him via sign and trade. But I don't know if you want to hard cap yourself for Mo Bamba. You need to be pretty like, well below the luxury tax apron luxury tax apron have no plans to to even flirt with it if that's something that you're looking at uh the the white versus false question though i spent more time on that than thinking about that than i thought i ever would so great question there darkwing duck asks given expansion rumors if there was an expansion draft this summer using previous expansion draft rules who's the best player likely to be taken i spent way too much time coming to like a terrible conclusion here so the last, I won't get into the nitty gritty of the way that the, the most recent expansion draft uh, in 2004, the Charlotte Bobcats worked, but every team was allowed to, to protect up to eight players who were either under contract or slated to be restricted free agents. So if they were going to be a free agent, unrestricted free agent, they couldn't be protected and the Bobcats could not draft them. But if it was a restricted free agent, they could be protected. And if they weren't, Charlotte was allowed to... Uh, draft them and they would inherit their, their bird rights. I'm just, let's just assume that's the, the case here. Uh, there are teams that aren't going to want to protect a players. I'm sure, especially with the way empty roster spots work in the off season. 
I tried to really come up with like, you know, in that draft, the best player Charlotte took was Gerald Wallace. That just to give you sort of a glimpse into how teams are going to think there, they're not just going to make, you know, they don't really like when you start to go through rosters and you're allowed to protect eight players, like you get to the bottom of the barrel pretty quickly. Like most teams don't have eight above average players in, in their rotation at any given moment. And so there's that to consider as well. There's also the aspect of, well, would teams consider not protecting a player who has this massive contract in hopes that an expansion team would take him? And so that was the route that I kind of went with this rather than just looking for the best player who might be unprotected. I came up with, I thought about Julius Randle for a minute, but I don't think an expansion team would be too high on taking him. And if you're targeting like, you know, Russell Westbrook would probably be available. I, I don't think that he is going to be taken either, even if it was a Tobias Harris with Philly. The one I settled on, and maybe they would protect him. You can tell me that I'm out of my mind. Would Denver want a mulligan on the Michael Porter Jr. extension? I know that they're safeguarded against disaster on it. That is still a massive deal. And it won't become fully guaranteed on that last year. Um, it'll, it'll be performance-based. And so when you're really looking at his contracts, it's the first, which, by the way, it hasn't even started yet. It starts next season. So they sign him to an extension, and the first four years guarantee him $136.6 million. That fifth year is worth 40.3, which would bring the total to 176.9. So what the Nuggets did with Michael Porter Jr. is they essentially guaranteed him around $150 million over that four years. They could become more, um, jump past 150 if he makes an all-NBA appearance, or if it's fully guaranteed. Again, there's that. That's how you get to the basically five-year $177 million number. Would they consider just being like, will we'll put him in the draft and would a team want to roll the dice on him because he is potentially so transcendent offensively. That is the best, like the biggest name that I could envision maybe getting to that point. I don't really know who else to get there with. I thought about would Chicago just want to get off of the Vooch contract and the team's gonna be like, Oh, here's a useful player final year of his deal. Let's just take him. I, I honestly don't know. So I'm going to, my, my, I'm going to settle on Michael Porter jr. I don't know if, if that's the correct answer. You can let me know what you think, though. Uh, let's get to Glad from Discord. Had a bunch of questions. First one was top five players who haven't been named as an all-star in the league right now and five players you think are going to take a leap in all-star level next year. So I think I combined these two into one. I misread the question when I was doing the research on it. And the five players that who haven't made an all-star team that I could see sort of making that leap uh, – Next, next season, I settled on, and I'll give my considerations from other names, but I settled on Tyrese Halliburton, Shea Gillis-Alexander, Anthony Edwards, Cade Cunningham, and Evan Mobley. I thought about Scotty Barnes, Desmond Bain, De'Aaron Fox, CJ McCollum, John Collins, Jaron Jackson Jr., even Jamal Murray probably deserves an honorable mention there, even though he's coming back from that ACL injury. Um, the fact that three of those guys are in the West makes me think that I should throw Scotty Barnes in favor of Edward Shea or... I'm only two of those guys. Tyrese Halliburton's no longer in the West. So there you go. The balance is there. Uh, but those are the five that I could really see. Uh, Cade and Evan Mobley, obviously, they're going to be sophomores, so that could technically get just a little difficult. Uh, but Evan Mobley was borderline in that discussion already this year, and I really do think Cade Cunningham somehow just wound up having an underrated rookie campaign, people thinking he's capitalizing off of just like this unchecked license in Detroit. And he just has a command of, of the game that I think is going to make him a top five player in the NBA for just a really, really, really long time. Evan Mobley just might be tougher. He probably needs to have better offensive numbers. That's also why I didn't pick Scotty Barnes. It feels like I, you need his, uh, you need him to shoulder a bigger offensive role, which they did. They did like try to increase the volume and, like complicate his uses a little bit over the course of the year with Fred Van Fleet there, Pascal Siakam, as long as they have OG Ananobi and Gary Trent Jr. I, I think, uh, I think that th there's a chance you're not going to see that growth from him by, by design almost right away. So those are the ones that I would stick with. And I, I think the best one, the, the player with the best chance to do it, of that group 
I think it's Anthony Edwards, even though he's in the Western Conference. It's Anthony Edwards or Cade Cunningham for me. Um, I feel like I should I should say Shea, but I I really can't. So there's that as well. But um, I think it's Anthony Edwards. It just felt like he really made a huge leap when you're looking at what sort of happened uh, even in the playoffs, looking at his defense. He, there were still some defensive lapses, but he can really disrupt on that end of the floor now, can score at every level. Um, I can very much see like his efficiency climbing next year, maybe turning into like this super lethal off the dribble three-point shooter being the engine, even of the Timberwolves offense, maybe they're taking some, you know, initiation touches away from uh, a D'Angelo Russell, if they're not going to move him and even funneling more of the offense through him. Uh, I did not give consideration of who I think the best players are in the league that haven't made an all-star appearance right now. Uh, I think a lot of that, probably can be like it might there's a lot of that that can sort of be uh in in this same list Um, if you're looking at like anthony edwards has probably got to be up there definitely think shade gilders alexander needs to be up there Um, jalen brown already made an all stream cj mccollum has definitely got to be on that list maybe a clint capella if you're looking for more veterans some people would throw deandre ayton into that equation so if you're just looking for names there i do think there's going to be some intersection here though um, even with how young a lot of the players on this list are going to be. One I did not name, Tyrese Maxey could be a sneaky candidate for an in, in all-star team, but playing with Embiid and Harden at the same time feels like that could sort of taper him off a little bit. But yeah, those would be the names to watch for me. Uh, oh, the other part of this question was, is it fair? Also, is it fair to continue calling players who only had one or two good years all-star players if they haven't been back to that level, i.e. D'Angelo Russell, Drew Holiday, Mike Conley? It, I think it just depends when it's Mike Conley and drew holiday. And there's been like sustained, really useful stardom for a longer period of time. I think it's fair to call them. You don't have to say all stars, but at least call them stars. But if we're talking D'Angelo Russell, definitely on the fence about that one, but like you can't Mo Williams having one all-star appearance. Like, no, you can't, we should not be calling it all-star Mo Williams. Go ahead and know he made an all-star team. It's also tough for me to ascribe too much value to all-star appearances with how topsy turvy the, the results can still get, even with the current form formatting a la Andrew Wiggins being named an all-star starter this year. Glad also asks this, this question was interesting. I don't even think they meant to ask it, but we were having a discussion in discord. So I'm taking it from here. You taking Gobert or Harden. And we said over the next four to five years was the stipulation next year. I am taking Harden. I just feel like there's a chance something clicked or that he understands uh, he doesn't get to switch teams again like this and that he's going to need to get in better shape and stay healthier and maybe just having an off season where he knows where he's going to be or is just going to be motivated because now people are sort of talking with him in different terms. It was one thing when he forced his way off of Houston, but then the way the stuff in Brooklyn went down, even if you don't really like Kyrie Irving, uh, I, I, I could see a scenario in which if you're asking me if James Harden more likely to continue sort of his drop off or be a top five to 10 player again next year, I'm going to take the lineup. Are you more, am I more likely to invest in his MVP odds or bet on him having a season in which he doesn't make the all-star team I'm more likely to bet on his MVP odds over the, over time though. Yeah. Like the stuff with James Harden was one in Ironman has been an Ironman for so long with that high usage. I could see him sort of breaking down a little bit. He's played a more taxing role on the offensive end. Rudy Gobert, I do wonder how his movement will age defensively, but four to five years down the line, he just feels like someone, even as a rim runner, rebounder, and if you have to put him completely in drop coverage all the time, like it'll be easier to extract value out of him three and four years down the line than James Harden. So are you taking the next half decade of Rudy Gobert or James Harden? I'm taking Rudy Gobert, somewhat reluctantly on the fence. If you're making it one or two years, I'm going with James Harden there. Outside of players that show up immediately and are really good, how long on average would you say does it take for players to develop into all-star caliber players? Butler, Levine, even Giannis come to mind as more developed players um, than star players like KD, LeBron. More recently, we could say like Trey, Luca, Ja, Zion to an extent who kind of came in and took over. To me, it looks to be about the fourth to fifth years. I looked more towards that leap into 20 points per game as kind of all-star caliber, obviously. Everyone was different. Yeah, this was interesting, and there's actually been studies done on it, and I think it was Dartmouth 
did a study in which they found that, and yes, it was Dartmouth. Um, the average age of an all-star player and an MVP is 26.5 for an all-star player and 27.9 for an MVP. Uh, I think all NBA, I saw this was on hoops hype. Uh, the average age of in an in all NBA player is around it's between 27 and 28 again. So I don't know what year of a player's career that would be. If you're looking at all-star players specifically, like the 25, 26 range, which feels like for most guys going to be like the fifth or sixth season of, of their career or around there. So I would say that you're spot on there, Glad, with the, the way that you phrase that. I think you mentioned in your question, the fifth year. Last question here comes from Braden. Clippers have a few trade exceptions. Any idea who you think they, what they could do with them? So yeah, they have their two trade exceptions, which are worth, there's one that's 8.3 million and there's one that's 9.7 million about rounding that. Um, the 8.3 one is from the Rondo trade. And then the 9.7 one is from the Serge Ibaka trade. I'd be curious to see if they, like, I'm assuming Isaiah Hartenstein is on a different team next season. They have Zubats, and I know that you can get bigs for maybe cheaper, but like if the Knicks were just willing to give you Nerlens Noel, are you willing to take that into one of your exceptions, or are you just so committed to closing smaller that you're just fine finding someone on the super cheap, having Zubats and going from there? I would love to see Larry Nance Jr. on this team, and he fits into that Serge Ibaka trade exception. You're not just getting him for that. I don't know if there's a deal with non-simultaneous trades that could be struck there. Um if New Orleans decides to go in a different direction this summer, maybe they're drafting a big, or maybe they just don't envision having like enough rotational room for, for Larry Ant Jr. with Zion coming back and you have Jackson Hayes and you have Jonas Valanciunas. I don't think it gets to that point, but that would just be a name in the middle of the season, maybe. Um, and I think the Serge Ibaka trade exception expires. Yeah. So that expires February 10th. So they would have time to sit on it if they wanted to. Uh, I also thought, what about TJ McConnell? I don't really know how the Pacers view him. There was a report from Jake Fisher that they're looking to lean further into the rebuild. So can you get TJ McConnell into that? Maybe the Pacers don't want his deal on the books and that would provide just some game management. Um, torpedo your floor spacing a little bit, but it'll give you some defensive pressure. And then also just, again, like someone to get you into stuff in the half court or, or push it up the floor in transition. You could also go that route with Kemba. I don't know what he has left, but it would be, he'd be a lot more useful on the Clippers than next to Kawhi Leonard and, and Paul George than whatever was happening in New York. And he might be cooked. Um, so maybe you don't want to take on his $8 million salary when you know how much it's going to cost for your tax bill. The other two names that spring to mind is if, if the Bucks are look, looking to cut their tax bill and you think that George Hill has anything left, um, he, he wouldn't be terrible. He's owed 4 million. And just if the jazz are looking to cut their tax bill, like, do you take the flyer on Nikhil Alexander Walker, or do you just really think that he has nothing there? Because the Clippers clearly trust like their developmental program, and they're probably looking for more immediate help. But those are some names that I got into. You can feel free to get at me, Braden, if you have any others in the Discord chat. That'll do it for me. This was fun. Um, apologies for the weird podcast publishing schedule this week, but please just remember to download a very episode. And if this was the first time you listened to us, or if you haven't done so, you've made it this far. Please consider throwing us that permanent subscription. Follow us on all the, all the socials, the links to which are in the description. Until next time, I leave you with a shout-out to the one, the only, the legendary, Frank Neal Keenum.